This week, I've partnered with McCulloch and Wallace, which has been around since 1902, selling haberdashery and fabrics to the fashion trade, and more recently, retail customers along with the theatre and film industries. Still in London, Soho, they are one of a handful of independent merchants still hanging in there. With lockdown and the proliferation of home crafting, there has been a welcome upsurge in interest in knitting, crochet and dressmaking to while away the isolated hours and soothe troubled minds. To see their products, head to www.mcculloch-wallace.co.uk. Hello, my name is Juno Dawson and my biggest fear is having an IBS attack in public. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear, how it limits them, how it motivates them, how they face it, and what you can learn about yourself and the world around you from your fear. My guest this week is Juno Dawson. She is a best-selling novelist, screenwriter, journalist and columnist for Attitude magazine. Her writing has appeared in Glamour, The Pool, Dazed and The Guardian. She has also contributed to news items on BBC Women's Hour, Front Row, ITV News, Channel 5 News, This Morning and Newsnight. She is presently adapting her 2019 novel Meat Market for television. Juno grew up in West Yorkshire writing imaginary episodes for Doctor Who. She later turned her talent to journalism, interviewing luminaries such as Steps and Atomic Kitten, before writing a weekly serial in a Brighton newspaper. Juno writes full-time and lives in Brighton. She is part of the queer cabaret collective known as Club Silencio. In 2014, Juno became a school role model for the charity Stonewall. Hello, Juno. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, I love the bit in the in your bio where it says, uh, write imaginary episodes for Doctor Who. I'm thinking, what is that? How, how do you do that? Well, I mean, now they would call it fan fiction. But of course, when I was a child, we didn't have the internet. That's how elderly I am. So I just used to write like stories on bits of paper for my grandma Um of course, this paid off because two years ago I got to write an actual Doctor Who novel for the BBC range. So so that childhood practice came in really, really handy. Yeah. And also what this is might be a very ignorant question, but what is a school role model? So Stanwall um approached me a long, long time ago, before I'd even started my transition. Um, they recruit kind of successful LGBTQ plus people from all across the spectrum and drop you into a school somewhere in the UK. And you basically just tell your life story. You're not there to mentor anyone or sell anything. It's just the sheer fact that you are a successful LGBTQ person sends out a really clear message to those kids that you can be LGBTQ plus and also a success in whatever field you've chosen. So there are sports people and business leaders, entrepreneurs and actors and authors. I did some research about it and it says it helps people to feel free uh, to be who they are. How can I ask how you got to a place where you felt to be free to who, to be who you are? I, I sort of did a very slow, strange rambling 
like scenic route to get to where I am. And, And a lot of that was to do with education. Had there been Stonewall school role models when I was at school in the 90s, my life would have turned out very, very differently. As it was, I started school in 1988, which is when Section 28 came into law, and I graduated high school the year they repealed Section 28. If you're not familiar with Section 28, it was a piece of legislation that was brought in by Margaret Thatcher's government that forbid teachers or librarians or social workers from promoting homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle you know, as as if it were a choice. And so what that meant was that teachers, librarians, social workers just couldn't help the young people they were working with. So, you know, it was, it was screamingly clear from when I was about four years old that, you know, I wasn't your average little boy kind of, you know, for one thing I was going around and telling anyone who would listen that I was a girl or that, you know, I was Daphne from (laughs) Scooby-Doo, you know, and then, and nobody could really help me. And my parents didn't know what a trans person was. Um, and then in the 90s, you know, we, we had slightly better representation on the TV. And, you know, we had Dawson's Creek and Will and Grace and all those kind of things. And so I kind of initially thought, because I knew I was attracted to men. So I initially thought, well, I guess I'm a gay guy. And I was really happy with that. You know, there, were, there was a sense of resolution that came with that, a sense of figuring myself out and I think we all do quite on some level we all crave being pigeonholed I think and um and so for a while I I was quite satisfied with that because I could at least picture a future for myself I was like great you know I will finish school and I will get out of this town I grew up in a small suburb up north and you know then I will meet a guy and I will at least find love but of course, as anyone knows, you know, you know, as RuPaul knows, you know, if you can't love yourself, you're not going to love anybody else. And and what I all I had done when I was 16 or 17 is figure out my sexuality. You know, I figured out whether or not I fancied guys or girls. And and for me, I always really strongly knew I fancied guys. And it was only then as I headed into my 20s, there was still this real sense of sort of wrongness, a sense of kind of you know, this sort of tip of the tongue sensation of something's not quite right. And, you know, I moved to London and Bright well, Brighton, then London, then Brighton again. And, and, you know, I was surrounded by these fantastic and inspiring and creative and clever gay men. And increasingly, I was finding myself in all male spaces and just felt really alien. Like I was looking at these guys and I was just like, I'm just not you. You know, I don't belong with you. It's like Adardalana, I don't belong here. Um and and it was, I mean, I always say that, you know, I say to a lot of girlfriends, you know, imagine you were sent to an all-boys school, you know, just how weird that would feel and how alone you would feel and how isolated. And there was there was two really clear moments in my late 20s where, first of all, I was round my friend Rob's house, hello Rob, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me mentioning this, and he'd like organized this like Nintendo night where he'd invited around all these super lovely nerdy gay guys to just hang out and play on like Mario Kart and stuff. And I really knew that these should be my people. Like the, these were the nicest guys you could hope to meet. And I still felt like such a misfit. And at the same time, 
I'd started to get to know some real life trans women. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not daft. I had seen trans women in the media. Um, but the, there is a disconnect when you just see someone on television or in films. Um, you know, actors and actresses will always feel slightly elevated and untouchable, I think. And um, it was only when I started to get to know real life trans women with real jobs. And, and I've said many, not that being an actor is not a real job, Cressida, but um, I've, no, said I get it, it. I've said many times about the influence of meeting Isla Holden, who is a RAF pilot. She is now a police helicopter pilot. And of course, she was splashed all over the front page of the sun because for a brief period her co-pilot was Prince William but I met Isla and I was so inspired by how she was just this super cool beautiful woman who wasn't interested in being famous she wasn't a journalist or an author or a pop star she was just a pilot what's well, just a pilot just an RAF pilot um, and I was I thought she was amazing and as well what was really important was I saw the relationship she still had with her mum and that her mum, she in fact not only did she seem like she felt like my mum, but she looked a bit like my mum as well. And and I recognised that their relationship had gone through a hiccup, but actually that it had recovered, and that she was still her mum, and they still had that bond. And I sort of started again. I started to see a future for myself, and like, oh my gosh, maybe maybe this is what you are, maybe this is what you have always been, and maybe this is your future. So, And, and I think, again, that's what Stonewall role models are all about. We are showing these kids that there is a future for them, however they identify, whether it's gay or lesbian or bi or trans, there is a future for you. And, and it was, it's sad to me that it, w- it was until I was 28 that, you know, I saw a future for myself. Um, and it shouldn't have been that way. And that's not my fault. And it's not my parents' fault. Um, but, you know, then I, you know, being a grown up and I was in a privileged position that, you know, I was able to seek out therapy and and talk around my gender and sort of reconcile the difference between gender and sexuality and how they are two completely different things. And, you know, after a year or so of therapy, I was like, I'm, I'm ready to start now. I'm, I'm ready to sort of come out to people and change my name and you know make some real sort of tangible changes in my life and and honestly I've never looked back and you know I do get asked when I go on those school visits I get asked you know how do you know and I've, I've said you know it's, it's not that easy but what I can say is every day that I've been due now I've been happier um you know, not every day is skipping through a field of daisies, but I mean, hello, we're in a global pandemic, but that toothache has gone. There was like a constant toothache and now now it's gone. I, you know, I know who I am and I know who I was. Mm. And I think that sense of belonging, we all want, you know, we all want to belong. And when we don't in a moment in our lives is, is a really lonely feeling especially actually when you're a teenager, I think those years are really, really tricky. And for you in, in that time, and actually even as a little boy, were there moments of, of, of real fear? And, and actually even when you reached 28, was that a fearful time? Yeah, 100%. I think it doesn't matter how far we come along with LGBTQ representation, that fear of rejection is so damaging 
to young, especially teenagers and children, you know, that, that sense that, you know, that this truth about yourself, this secret about yourself could cause the people that you need the most to cut you off. But it doesn't happen very often. Most parents build a bridge and, and get over it. But, you know, there are still cases where where kids are rejected by their parents. And that doesn't really happen with any other minority group. Because if you think about if you are a person of colour, there is every possibility that your parents belong to the same minority group that you do. If you are Jewish, it's highly likely that your parents are Jewish. Whereas if you are gay or lesbian or trans, the likelihood that your parents are gay, lesbian or trans is so tiny. I mean, there are gay and lesbian parents, but they're in a tiny, tiny, tiny group. So so the likelihood is, which is that you as a child belong to a minority group that your parents do not. And that's always going to be really, really scary. And that's never going to go away. And when you made that transition, did you feel accepted did you feel more accepted and did you feel you uh had a stronger sense of your own identity yeah I mean I I got really really lucky um it wasn't easy there was definite a definite sky is falling moment especially with my mum um she didn't have the sort of the same access to information that I had living in living in two big cities um I think she was re and I think this is true of a lot of parents. She was really, really worried that I would be in peril, that I would be ridiculed, that I would be hurt. Um, and no parent wants that for their kids. I mean, that's why I think it's so hilarious when some people like accuse parents of like transing their kids. No parent would choose this for their children because you you know that, you know, those, your, your child is going to be uniquely vulnerable. And I think my mum was really worried about that. My dad was really chill. My dad was great. I think there'd always been lots of problems with me and my dad. And when I told him that I was a girl, it just made sense to him. He was like, oh, yeah, right, got it. And because I have a younger sister, he already understood how to do a father-daughter relationship. So it was just, it was almost like there'd been this issue. And then overnight, almost, it just went away um, because he was able to sort of reframe his perception of who I was, I think. Um, but I, I mean, I will say this, both my parents were amazing. And within the space of six months, I think they realized I wasn't struggling. I think they realized that I was much happier. Um, And I think they realized that I was the best version of myself. And my my mum in particular, and this is so typical, she's like Bridget Jones's mum. I love Bridget Jones's mum. She was always really fascinated by why I was always single. She was like, she she said she could never understand why it was I'd never been able to make a relationship work. And of course, the reason I'd never been able to make a relationship work was because I was still in the process of figuring myself out. So I think, especially when I got together with my partner and she realised that, you know, Again, I was just going to live this quite average, boring life, which I do. You know, I live in a nice flat in a nice town with my nice partner, with my nice dog, with my great job. And, and I think now she's, they've both, they've both just chilled out. And you were going to get married, weren't you? This yes. year. Um, and hopefully we still will. We were due to get married in June. Yeah, because we, we um, I was the same, but we went ahead and, and just did it. Um, but I, I read that you were 
supposed to get married and postpone it. And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I get, I get where you are. I get where we're at. Well, well what's going to happen next March is if we are in some sort of second wave or something, Max and I will go ahead and do the legal bit. We'll, we'll do the whole registry office section and get the legal stuff in place because there's a possibility I might have to go work in America for a bit next year. And if I have to go live in America, obviously I want Max to come too. So it's going to make sense for us to be married. But I do want, and the, the thing is, it wasn't even a big wedding. Like it was only like 50, I think 75 guests in total. But I do want a piss up and I do want to dance to Girls Aloud and the Spice Girls. And and that that's how I wanted it to be. I, I wanted it to feel like the best ever club night. And and while, while we can't do dancing, I'm happy to keep postponing it. And how did you meet him? On Tinder, how modern. It was, I mean, I didn't hold out a lot of faith in either men or Tinder, it has to be said. Um, I had just come out of like a real snaggle of like a six-month thing um, with a guy who had, he was one of the worst kind of guys, like a really shit boyfriend who thinks he's one of the good guys. And they're the worst. 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 And so I had broken that off and then knew I was about to go do a month in Australia with, with work. I was touring one of my novels. And and so clearly I wasn't looking to meet anyone. But then I sort of thought, oh, just, you know, rip off the plaster, get back on Tinder. And, you know, you just need to, because it's, it's so disheartening when you've broken up with somebody and you've got to sort of re-enter the dating pool, whatever kind of dating you're doing. And I was sort of like, um, okay, here we go then. And Max must have sent me a message months earlier, like ages ago, because it had been sat on my Tinder for ages. And so then I just replied to his initial message and, and it just went from there. And, and I think that trip to Australia was really important. And I've, I've told Max this, that had it not been for that, bit of distance I don't think it would have worked out because I definitely I was so cross with how things had gone with the other guy that I was in no headspace at all to be dating anyone and that was in the September of 2018 and we've yeah it's just been it's just been lovely ever since really yeah and, and you live together we did yeah we last year um, I was in a position to buy a house for the first time. And as a freelance writer, you shouldn't take that for granted. So I was like, do you know what? It's now or never. Let's just buy this flat. And because we might never be in a position to do so ever again. And then, of course, it's sod's law that as soon as I buy a house, a big job comes up in LA. But <laughs> let's see. Your book, Meat Market, is this for the TV series for Meat Market? And this, this is something different. So I'm really lucky in the moment that nearly all of my novels are in some form of adaptation somewhere. That is amazing. That's amazing. So this is, I'm not really allowed to talk about the actual project itself, but needless to say, it's a TV project for an American network. And it's been in development now for about a year. Development on it was postponed because of COVID. Things are starting up again now and we're starting to get back into it. So so watch this space. Watch this space. It might happen, it might not. With, with TV stuff, I am so pessimistic. Like if it happens, it happens. You've, you've really got to, and you, you know from working film and TV as well, that you've got to really be able to roll with the punches. Oh my God, yeah, yeah, so much. And in your work, do you know, you, um, I really, really respect you because you're not afraid to use your voice. And I think that can be very hard a lot of the time to actually use our voices um, because it can be uh, rejected and not wanted. And I feel like you 
do not do that. You use your voice. Have you always been like this? Somewhat. I remember one of my primary school teachers said that, you know, I was destined for politics, which I don't think is true. But I've always been a bit of a gob. And some, my mum always used to say, you know, your mouth will get you into trouble. And she was definitely right. Um, it's tricky. I think if you are a person, especially a woman from a minority group who sticks your head above the parapet, you are going to be slapped down. Um, that is so true of especially online discourse it's become so febrile it's tricky because there have been times in my career where I've sort of courted this label of activist because I really looked up to people like Russell T Davis you know who you know he could have when he got that job on Doctor Who you know he didn't need to use that platform to advocate for LGBT rights but he did and he always has done so I sort of felt like well you know it's time to do my shift. You know, I'm very lucky in that I'm a trans woman in the public eye. There are very, very few of us. So it's your responsibility to speak up. But then I realized, I think people from minority groups can be used a bit like props. I think with the way that the media is very wedded to this kind of quite gladiatorial debate style TV, you know, they don't really care about my mental well-being. They don't really care about my health. They don't really care that if I go on Newsnight, I'm going to get five days worth of hate on social media. Nobody seems to care about that. Is that what you get? Hell, 100%. So I tweeted on Friday, I tweeted something... I don't want to get into it, but I, I tweeted in about just about my experience as a trans person and, and what it's like to be a trans person in 2020, especially online. And oh my God, the just farewell my mentions. It was just, it was a disaster and really horrible stuff. And so after about a day, I just thought, you know, that that, that tweet is just not worth it. But I, I, I understand that that's what they want. They want me to go away and be quiet. That is the goal. But, you know, just it was bank holiday weekend. You know, I didn't want to spend the next three days deleting tweets saying I'm an ugly man who is a danger to women. You know, that is not my idea of a great bank holiday weekend. And does that make you want to not, you know, if you see if you want to use your voice in the future, say on Twitter or in your writing, does that make you not want to carry on doing that? Or is it, or do you feel the other way around? You're like, actually, fuck you guys. What I realized about a year ago is that in the six years since I came out, I've been having the same conversation over and over. And I think people who are critical of trans lives, they use those arguments to be like quicksand. They don't want us to move on from trans women are women, trans men are men. And, you know, I've been saying that for six years. And so I realized, don't get into it. It's it's a waste of time. And what I really want to do now is move my career into a position where I'm in um, not necessarily being a mouthpiece, but in a position of creative control. And in particular, I looked at the amazing work that Janet Mock is doing in America and Janet Mark is a writer. She's a black trans woman. Um, she worked in the media for a long time, but then Ryan Murphy reached out to her as a gay man and said, look, I'm, I am not the right person to tell your story. So he brought her into Pose, where she is now exec producer and one of the head writers. And then Janet Mark now has an overall deal with Netflix to create content for them. And that is why, to me, Janet Mock is the most powerful trans person in the world, because she isn't just 
being wheeled out and saying trans women are women, trans women are women. She's actually creating art and telling these stories in a really authentic way. And I think if you've watched Pose, it's to my mind, it's by far and away the best representation of trans people on screen because it's being written and directed by a trans woman. So it figures. So actually, it is actually about people being more aware and understanding and having that kind of um, knowledge other, other than being completely ignorant about that person's experience. I mean, it is just basic empathy. I mean, I'm becoming slightly wary of the word community as well, because I think sometimes there is something very dehumanizing about the word community, like Juno Dawson from the trans community. What? That's not a thing. And so I really, I'm just trying to sort of you know, it's not like I go down to the trans community hub or the trans community cafe because it just doesn't exist. So really it's just trans people. Um, and I, I always think that something that I advocate really strongly for is no conversations about us without us. Um, you know, and so much, so much is said about trans children in particular, but is anybody speaking to trans children? No. I mean, it's really difficult. And, you know, if you could tell a younger you or a group of trans children what you know now, what would you say? Well, I think that's, I mean, really, this is going back to what I do with Stonewall. So, you know, there are a million different ways to be trans. There's a million different ways to be a lesbian. There's a million different ways to be gay. It's really about finding the version of your life that you're happiest with. And so the best thing that I can do is just be visible, I guess, and just be importantly doing my job. And that's something that I've realized in the last couple of years is really important um, for me. And it came out of nowhere. The bookseller, which is a trade magazine, got in touch with me and said that I was in the top five best selling YA authors in the country. And I was like, hold up. That's really cool. Like a trans woman from Bradford, from a working class family in Bradford, is one of the best-selling authors in the country. And I realized I don't need to argue with these people on Twitter because I'm succeeding. And I think it's really important that trans youth can see me succeed. And also, I think just going on to your, your fear, I think this whole idea of being accepted for who we really are is a really there's a really strong link there between that and um you know the the fear around surrounding IBS because it's not talked about and I'm so happy that you've come on today with that fear and actually it wasn't what I was expecting because I think it's so brave so thank you for bringing it up and is it is is IBS something you've always had and how does it affect your life and thank you for saying that because hilariously I was way less ashamed to come out as trans than I am to talk about IBS and I think I don't think it really matters what I was about to say it's a very British thing but actually I can't think of many places in the world where people are encouraged to talk about I guess their bodily functions and I and I felt for a long time that we we need to stop being squeamish about our bodies I think you know we've gotten much much better at talking about um, breast examination or testicular examination and, and sort of being particularly on the lookout for cancers. But of course, a lot of IBS symptoms can be the symptoms of bowel cancer or colon cancer, which of course has been massively in the news because of Chadwick Boseman's um, sad passing. Um, 
So, so, I mean, I think we need to get so much better as a nation at talking about bathroom habits because people die. People really do die. Now, as it is, my IBS sort of started when I was a, when I was a teenager. And so because I wasn't really in the demographic who mostly suffer with IBS, I was checked out and to rule out sort of anything insidious. Um, and at various times I've, I've, I have been checked over again to make sure that the symptoms of my IBS aren't, aren't cancer in particular, which is the thing they're looking out for. But it's, it's been a journey. So if, if I started with this when I was 12 or 13 years old, you know, it's kind of been nearly 30 years now of kind of having to live with this really limiting it's a life-limiting condition because it really does spoil your fun. It, it seems that there's a big link between anxiety and IBS. And if you got it when you were a child, is that, does it start with anxiety that then leads to IBS or does it, is it sort of like a vicious circle? I think that's the ultimate sort of IBS chicken and egg question. Um, and what's really interesting is doctors still don't really know what it's about. Um, and I think their thinking on IBS is changing all the time. There was a period, oh, maybe about 15 years ago, where everybody was convinced that IBS was some sort of food intolerance. And so I was tested for every food intolerance going. And as it turns out, I do have an intolerance to egg white, which is actually quite common, but um, which certainly wasn't helping matters. Um, but then about 10 years ago, they seemed to change direction and decide that IBS is psychological. And this came about when I went to my GP in London, who was an amazing guy. And he was the one who really helped me at the beginning of my transition as well. And I was almost sort of threw myself on his mercy. Like I was really tearful. I'd had um, this horrific IBS attack at the Hay Festival on the Welsh borders. It's a really beautiful literary festival. It was one of the biggest events I've ever done in my career. It was me and Mallory Blackman, who was at the time the children's laureate. And obviously Mallory Blackman is just an iconic children's author anyway. And so I was due to go on stage with Mallory. And just as we were doing our sound check, that literally mic'd us up, my stomach, I started to get the most horrific stomach cramps. And I was just like, oh my God, this is just the worst time. And then you do start to psych yourself out and it becomes everything we understand about anxiety. So you start telling yourself, this is the end of the world and you catastrophize it. And you're like, oh my God, I'm going to have an IBS attack on stage at the Hay Festival. It will be the end of my career. I will be harmless. Um, you know, you, you, you just spiral. And I was sat next to another author called Louise O'Neill and I just turned to her and said, I've got to get off this stage. And I legged it. I just absolutely legged it. And, and then obviously I had 10 minutes off stage. I got myself together and went back on and it was fine. And everybody was like, oh, cool, she's back. <laughs> and, and I realized kind of like the worst thing had happened and actually the world was still turning. You know, in that 10 minutes, Mallory and Louise had talked. Nobody had even missed me. And, but I was I'd worked so hard for my career that that was what inspired me to get myself to the doctors and I sort of went in and I just said look enough is enough 
I can't do this. It's, it's constant, you know, it's, it's really affecting my life. It's affecting my career. And he was like, I'm going to put you on antidepressants. And I was like, I think you misheard. I just said I have IBS. And he was like, yes, I know. But what we're thinking increasingly is that it's, it's an anxiety attack. What you're having is basically a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, within weeks, my ABS was the most managed it had been in my whole adult life. And it was so funny, you know, I could, because I started to get particularly panicky about the tube, because at the time I was in London, and I would have this fear. The new fear was that the tube would break down and that I would be trapped in a carriage obviously the underground doesn't have toilets and I wouldn't be able to get off the train and I would have an IBS attack on a stationary tube did that ever happen no where did the fear come from I have no idea but that's not really fear doesn't make sense does it and as soon as I was on drugs and it took a couple of different antidepressants to get it right the first one actually made it worse um I could feel myself so I'd be on the tube And I could feel my head trying to psych myself out. So like the little voice in my head would be like, oh, what if this tube breaks down? But then now, because I was on the medication, my body just would not rise to it. And so it was kind of like, I'll just show up. And and in these places, like if you're on the tube or if you're on stage, there isn't quick bathroom, you know, an access bathroom that you can get to very easily. And how do you feel about this whole bathroom thing because I know there is a lot of discussion at the moment in the trans community about bathrooms do you feel uh worried about being challenged or what do you feel about that whole conversation I mean I did I did um I mean because I think something (laughs) that I hope listeners to this understand is that trans people are nothing new. Um, You know, the first gender reassignment operations were carried out in this country in the 1950s. Um, So there have been trans people in the United Kingdom for as long really as anybody's been alive. And in that time, trans people have used toilets with, with no problems. So I, you know, because of common sense and because I think the the other thing is that the old, you know, did your parents used to tell you, you know, a spider is much more afraid of you than you are of it. Why would a trans person, be it a trans man or a trans woman, want to put themselves in danger? So, you know, at the beginning of my transition in 2014, you just use your common sense. You know, you used a disabled toilet um, because at that time I looked quite androgynous, you know, and, and then as you sort of move through life and you realize that by and large, people just don't care. People are so, people have got their own shit to deal with. You know, no one really cares um, if a trans person is using the toilets at Victoria. You know, it's kind of everybody's got much bigger things to worry about. I've never been challenged in a public toilet. And as an IBS sufferer, I have to use them more than I would like. I mean, that's the other thing. Who actually wants to use public toilets anyway? They rank nine times out of 10. But as an IBS sufferer, and this is something you get so good at, is knowing where your nearest toilet is. So like whether I'm in Brighton or London, I'm always very mindful of, well, there's a toilet in Liberties. There's a toilet at the big stations. You can always nip into the 
so her hotel or something um hotels are really good because nobody checks if you're a guest um necessity meant for me I couldn't get too worried about being challenged in bathrooms because you know as an IBS sufferer when you've got to go you've got to go. And so if I did have worries about using bathrooms, I was much more worried about my IBS. And I also read somewhere that IBS is one of the leading problems when people don't turn up to school and turn up to work. And I'm assuming that's because they feel embarrassed and also embarrassed to go to the doctor, like you said before. How how do you think people can get over this embarrassment? Oh, I mean, it's, it's so tough. I mean, so this, this for me is, so if I was single, for example, like if I still wanted men at large to find me sexually appealing, I doubt I'd be having this conversation, but you know, Paul Max is stuck with me. So he has to hear about my IBS quite frequently, unfortunately, you know, cause it's part of our life, you know, and, and if you are in a relationship with someone who has IBS, then you have probably had to pull over your car to find a toilet at some point. But I mean, how sad is that, that if I still wanted you know, men on the internet to think I was pretty, maybe I wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, it's, it's something we all do. You know, it's something, it's something every living creature on this earth has to make waste. Um, and yet we, we just don't talk about it. And, and I think it's a shame. And it's interesting because IBS, as far as we know, IBS affects women more than men. But this could be that women statistically are much, much more likely to go to their doctor than men. And, and so we, we don't quite know because statistics can be so misleading. But we know that IBS is incredibly, incredibly common. It's so frustrating. And I was really, really lucky that I got a doctor who cared in fact, I don't have a single cisgender female friend who hasn't been to the doctor and dismissed with women's problems, you know. And of course, there is increasingly we're starting to accept that no woman should be fobbed off with the phrase women's problems, when by that they mean endometriosis or polycystic ovaries. You know, come on, let's get really specific. And I, I hope that GPs will stop fobbing people off with, oh, it's IBS. Because that can mean a lot of things. You know, is it anxiety? Because that can be sorted. Is it a food intolerance? Because that can be sorted. Is it depression? Because that can be sorted. And so I hope that as a, as a nation, you know, we should, you know, we love the NHS and we clap for our carers, but also we should be critical and mindful and, and sort of say, well, well, you know, I want a second opinion. I, d I don't think it's fair or right that I can't eat food without needing to run to the bathroom afterwards. Uh, and actually, it did take me in the end becoming quite dogged and saying, no, enough is enough. You know, I've lived with this for about 20 years. I would love to be able to enjoy a Sunday dinner, you know. And actually, as you, you've said that we don't talk about it and it is, you know, it's like we don't, people sometimes find it very hard to talk about periods and, and actually it's just human. And I think that's why I think this conversation, as I said, is very important because I think it's, you know, leading the way for more conversations to be had around this subject. And actually, even before this conversation, when you, when you told me about your fear, I, I know people with it, but I don't know much about it. So I did, you know, I looked it up and actually now I'm, I'm much more aware and it just takes that 
conversation or just being honest about that, I, I feel maybe then the anxiety decreases because you're able to just be like, oh, this is probably a bit of a release to say I have it. You're talking about it takes the air out of the tires of the anxiety and the shame and the panic um and I remember and again this is this isn't something I could have done when I was a teenager or in my 20s but saying to Max you know or various other boyfriends quite early on you know I I have IBS so I might have to leg it <laughs> and and I've said it to a professional things as well and that was that was a good one I remember it was at a festival in Ireland, where I just knew my stomach was a bit funny, it felt weird, and wanting to avoid a repeat of the hay situation, I just said to the organiser, look, I have IBS, if I've got to leg it, can you just make sure there is like a contingency? And they were like, oh, cool, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. And, um, and actually, because I had preempted the problem, I was fine, and I got through the event without any trouble, because I knew I could leave if I needed to. You know, I, I, I wouldn't refer to my IBS as a disability. But you know, employers have to make allowances for people's health, they might not like it, but they have to do it. Mm. And, and, and in the fashion world as well, I, um, I know your book Meat Market is about the dark side of fashion. And just just having that conversation there made me think about the 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 fashion industry and and how hard that would be for someone with IBS working in that space i often wonder about some jobs and how they manage and if you could do it things like tube driver i used to be, I spend a lot of time thinking about tubes apparently um tube driver like cabin crew like um i have friends who are cabin crew and, and i'm just like how would that work? Like if you were stuck on a plane for like 11 hours at a time, I mean, in cabin crew, do you get breaks? And obviously there are toilets on planes, but I was like, what if you're in the middle of like serving the little dinner service and you had an IBS attack? So I do spend a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> like how, how some, how some people manage like bus drivers, like how often do bus drivers get breaks? Um, and it's, it's funny Although, I mean, it's strange because actually when I used to be a primary school teacher back before I got my book deal, and, you know, I never used to have to run out of lessons. So it's funny, maybe being a freelancer has made me worse. I don't know, who knows? Um, and now with your with anxiety, how do you manage to sort of calm that down? I think, so I got, in fact, recently during lockdown, I got massively back into yoga, which obviously a lot of yoga is underpinned by breathing techniques and there is science behind breathing techniques which is if you can slow your breathing to an almost sleep level so like breathe in for seven out for seven seconds you can de-escalate that fight or flight response in your body and I think understanding anxiety as a fight or flight response to an imagined monster so back in our caveman days, you know, if like a woolly mammoth was coming at us, our body produced massive amounts of adrenaline, which would enable you to fight the woolly mammoth or flee from the woolly mammoth. The problem is now that that's the way our bodies and brains work, but there are no woolly mammoths. So like you see you have a phone call from your bank and all of a sudden your body is just flooded with adrenaline. And one of the side effects of adrenaline is you can feel like you're going to shit yourself. And so really the most 
basic thing you can do is try to undermine that adrenal response. And the best way you can do that is by trying to trick your body into thinking it's asleep. And you do that with breathing. With breathing. I'm a very bad breather, so I need to definitely take that in. (laughs) Juno, thank you so much. I finished with these three questions that I would love to ask you. What is the place you go to when you're feeling fearful? And that could be in your imagination or a literal physical place. I mean, I have one of both. I do have a sort of my happy place is there's a very beautiful lake in Snowdon, which is where we used to go when we were students. And for the first time in my life, I felt that sort of connection between nature and self and that you can use nature to inspire a tranquility in yourself. And so now I do not live in Snowdon, but I'm very lucky to live by the sea. So for me, you know, I'm an eight minute walk away from the beach. And so if I just need a bit of headspace, I just get straight down to the beach. Nice. And what is the song or piece of music that you would go to? I have, there's um, a very beautiful collection on my sort of Spotify of um, sort of like sort of gorgeous slur jams. But I think there is nothing more wonderful than the Carpenters on a Sunday afternoon. Karen Carpenter, the saddest woman who ever was and ever will be, but her voice speaks volumes. And what would you do if you were not afraid? Travel more. And that is linked to my IBS. I had a very difficult and fraught trip to Thailand last year that was really marred by this constant need to know where bathrooms were. And obviously, if you're in the middle of a jungle and I, and you know, when you just realize I can't do this. Yeah. So what did you, what did you do? I was a nervous wreck for a whole week. And it's so funny. And it was so clear because we spent the first week in the beautiful Paquette countryside. I was a mess the whole time. Um, And then we got to Bangkok, thriving city, toilets in every corner, and I was fine. So I've realized that I can travel, I can go on holidays, but it has to be a certain kind of holiday. Yeah. Juno, thank you so much for coming on Fear Itself. Could you tell us, well, I know you have got this project that you're not allowed to tell us all about, but what you're up to now and in the future and and a bit about your future work sure so this summer we had to knock back my next non-fiction title which is called what's the tea um it's a follow-up to my biggest selling book which is called this book is gay and it's like a handbook for young trans and non-binary people for just how to manage that strange time in their lives so that will now be out next february and of course i'm still officially promoting my most recent novel wonderland which is a retelling of alice in wonderland Fantastic. Thank you so much, Juno. Thank you so much for listening to Fear Itself, and I hope it was as interesting and as useful to you as it was for me. It would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe and maybe even share it with a friend so that other people can hear about us. Join me next week where I will be speaking to another wonderfully inspiring guest. Until then, take care.